0: Okay, this morning we're going to look at several scriptures as we are between um, between, uh, Colossians and Philemon. Um, I decided to take up a subject, and the subject is that of the biblical arguments for cessationism. Now, you may not know what that is, uh, but I'm going to take this week and next week to be looking more of the arguments found in the Word of God that why do we hold here the position of believing that the miraculous gifts have ceased. Uh, So that's what I want to look at. And because some say, like our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers in Christ, insist that none of the miraculous gifts have ceased. They are called continuationists. While other people, like myself, say that the gifts are with us, some gifts are with us, and some are gone. And that's a cessationist. Now, there is today still the problem of confusion in this area. When I talk to people, Even when we read our membership applications, when it comes to the question on this, sometimes people say, well, I don't really know, or I believe this or that uh, on this particular subject, and they really don't nail it down to, like, do I have convictions about why I would hold either position? So I kind of want to share with you those things, uh, and one reason that I want to say them is because the scriptures tell us that we are to test the spirits to see if they are from God. And how how do we test the spirit? How do we know if I have a leading of the Holy Spirit? Well, that can be very whimsical and um, subjective. It can be a very whimsical and subjective type of thing. But we do have to be careful lest we confuse the leading of the spirit with some possible indigestion or, worst, the leading of the anti spirit. The leading of the enemy himself in these days is very real. And he would lead us to go astray on any matter of scripture. So remember that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light so if you believe the scriptures come through the inspiration of god the holy spirit and that he is the spirit of truth and it is that truth that it is in, that is embodied in sacred scripture then the easiest way to test any private inclination or group leading that you get from other people is right in the word of god the written word of god and i am confident that there in the word of god we have the leading of the spirit because it is the spirit of god that has inspired the word of god and has written the word of god so we do have to go back to scripture to get arguments against a position or uh, for a position And so that's what I would like to do this morning. So it's more going to be like a teaching time, and I want you to be ready to look up some of the passages. But as we consider this, there are at least four essential theological elements in the neo-Pentecostal and charismatic movements. The first one is continuing revelation. The second one would be the spirit baptism subsequent to salvation. The third would be tongues. And the fourth would be healings, works of power, and casting out demons. Without these features, the charismatic brethren would not exist as a distinguishable element of Christendom. And I believe that each of these marks are unbiblical, in the sense that God is not now energizing these kinds of ministries. The phenomena experienced are either self-generated or, in rare instances, counterfeits of Satan himself. So I'm going to give you some arguments for cessationism against continuationism. And the first argument would fall in the category of the unique role of miracles. That would be the first one, the unique role of miracles. Now, as we think about that, remember, we have a historic faith. So in examining things, we do have to go back and look at history. The Bible tells us there are three times that miraculous gifts are mentioned in scripture. Now, there are other times, but there are three major revelatory periods, uh, all in about the space of 200 years. And it, when we are thinking about miracles, and a miracle is when God breaks the laws of nature to accomplish his will by doing that which is scientifically impossible. A miracle is something astonishing. It is something um, very, uh, it gets our attention. But the problem is, is that they're very rare, not only in Scripture, but in the world, in life itself. The first period that we see miracles is the period of Moses and Joshua. Now, we are reading through Exodus, and uh, we find there that Moses... uh, Is called by God and Aaron to do these miracles before Pharaoh and so you see the ten plagues and there are miraculous things that go on there and then you see the parting of the Red Sea to keep the people safe from the pursuit of the Egyptian army and then you see the healing of Mara's bitter waters and the giving of manna and Water from a smitten rock and Miriam's leprosy and the judgment of Korah and the brazen serpent healing the people as they look to the serpent and they, by faith, they are healed. Also, oil uh, or the parting of Jordan and Jericho's walls falling under Joshua. So, right that, that that's a period a historical period in which things were happening that was about a 65 year period and then the next period we have is elijah and elijah oil that didn't run out causing an ax head to float the raising of the widow's son the healing of naaman's leprosy and it goes on. I'm only mentioning a few just to let you know that there was a time that there were many miracles, but during those periods, why there were miracles? Because God was doing something new. He was uh, doing something different. There was a, a change in what was happening in the history of humanity. And so these areas are really uh dotted with miracles that capture the attention not only of the people living then, but of the readers of Scripture as we go go through those passages, we find that something's going on here. Something's going on here. How God is relating to Israel and how God is relating to his people. And then the next major revelatory period is Jesus and the apostles and prophets. Jesus and the apostles and prophets. That Jesus displayed his deity by effortlessly performing an array of miracles in every conceivable realm. Geographically, he's calming the storm with a word. Medically, he's generating the growth of a withered hand. Creatively, he's feeding 5,000 people with plus with two Fish. Chemically, water is changed into wine. Spiritually, he is casting out demons that are cohabitating in human bodies. And then, of course, he's also raising the deceased. He's raising the dead. So Jesus wielded absolute control over diseases, demons, death, And nature and the reason Jesus performed those miracles was to prove something about his claim that the miracles Jesus performed had to be miracles that were undeniable that they were irrefutable that they were uh, also verifiable instant complete downright impossible to do and of course that's exactly what he did and it showed that Jesus was not just a man. He was more than a man. And, of course, from Scripture, we conclude that Jesus was the God-man. He was sent from God. He was the one who was going to be sinless. And he was the one who was going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he had to be different. He had to be that last Adam That would be fully obedient to his father in heaven to the point of death on the cross, to the point of going to the cross for sinners and to die, not as a sinner, but of taking on the sin of others so he can pay the full price. Before the Heavenly Father, that He can satisfy the justice of the Father, that He can wash away and cleanse us of our sin and forgive us completely and make us right with God. Nobody would be able to do that or has ever done that, or anyone who's going to will never be able to do that. And that's the only one, it's Jesus Christ. So when you read scriptures like John 9, Uh, chapter 9, verse 30 and 33, it was when Jesus actually opened the eyes of a man blind, and it says there, the man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. So if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So Jesus, when he came, That was a time of special time of miracles that was proving who he was and the very work he came to do. And then we have the apostles. The same could be said about the apostles who really proliferated a a spectacular sampling of miracles during the infant years of the church. As it says in Acts 2, verse 34, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So Peter is healing a lame man, raising Dorcas from the dead. Paul is healing Uh, a crippled, raising Eutychus, the miracle of Malta. So miracles that they were doing did not occur on such a grand scale as they once did. And neither are miracles that are done after that, after the apostles are specifically linked to individuals with the gift of miracles. There is no... Biblical reason, though, at the same time to believe that God cannot and does not perform miracles today, but he does it, uh, does not do it through the gift he gave to a man because those times have passed away. They have passed on. So we, when we think about it, the primary reason for miraculous gifts is to establish the authenticity and credibility of God's spokesman as one sent from God. How do we know anybody would be sent from God during these days? Is because God gave them certain abilities to do certain things, and one of them is to perform miracles. And then, of course, these miracles were to validate the message as coming from God. And so that means... The one caution that should be applied before attaching a coveted label of a bona fide miracle is to pause to compare the person, the candidate, to a standard of a true biblical-grade miracle. And there are biblical-grade miracles. As a matter of fact, does the miracle line up with the miracles that are actually done in Scripture? And you'll find out what's happening today. Is not the case also we have to consider the mark of a true prophet so during the time of Jesus there were of course F him his apostles that were uh, and then he had his prophets and a prophet though is someone God puts his word in their mouth as Jeremiah tells us then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and to all the people saying That the Lord sent me to prophesy against the house, against this house and against the city, all the words that you have heard that God would give the words to the prophet and the prophet would speak. In other words, the prophet didn't go study the word. The word was actually given directly to them, and their job as a true prophet was to get it to the people and without messing it up get it to the people exactly the way God said it. So what prophets spoke must always come true. That is always true of any prophet mentioned in Scripture. That if you're a true prophet, what you say always must come true. So the first biblical argument for cessationism is the unique role of miracles. I'll talk a little bit more about that a little later, uh, maybe next week. But the second argument for cessation is, is this, the end of the gift of apostleship. There are no more apostles today, whether or anybody wants to claim to be an apostle or not. Biblically, there are no more apostles today. An apostle was a special individual who, whose qualifications were very specific and limited. And what were the the criteria of a person becoming an apostle? Well, the first one is an apostle was one who had seen the risen Lord, also who was a witness to the resurrection. Now, the only one born out of season, due season, was the apostle Paul. But we do know that the apostle Paul, while he was persecuting the church, On the road to Damascus, he met the risen Lord. And so that's why Paul keeps saying about himself that not only was he was the least of the apostles, but it also says in Corinthians, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. See, so somebody who's going to be an apostle had to see the risen Lord and had to witness the risen Lord resurrected. Secondly, an apostle was called, commissioned, and sent to preach the gospel of the risen Lord. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles uh, and turn to Acts chapter 26, verse 16 through 18. Because in this passage of Scripture, we see how Paul was commissioned to do something. He was sent to do something. And remember, Paul was not looking for the Lord when he met the Lord on the Damascus Road. He was in quite a a rebellious state when he ended up believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you notice in Acts 26, verse 16, it says, But get up, stand on your feet, for this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which have been seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, in verse 17, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am am sending you. And what is he sending them to do? Verse number 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, see, this was the message that was given uh, to the Apostle Paul, and this was his job. His job was to preach the gospel so people can be set free. And also, an Apostle was given special gifts and abilities. And these abilities included the working of miracles and the casting out of demons and the raising of the dead, and, of course, they're all considered to be works of powers. And these were given to authenticate the apostles' message. These also were given to lay down the foundation for building the church with the message of truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 12, it actually addresses that where it says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So God gave to them, the apostles, these unique gifts so it would authenticate who they were and that they were sent and called by God and that the message they preached were was not their own message, but it was a message given to them by God also an apostle was given the authority of Christ. Actually, the word, the English word apostle uh, we have, which in the first century was used of those who had the right to speak for an authority figure. That means they were a delegate of someone or an env- envoy of someone or a, a messenger of someone or an ambassador for someone. And so we do know that in Scripture, like in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, the Word of God tells us Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And now the names of the apostles are these, and he lists the names of the apostles. For example, the Caesar, during that time historically, would appoint others to speak for him in other parts of the Roman Empire. And the words of these delegates had the same authority as Caesar, that these delegates were known as apostoloi—that that is apostles, that Jesus' apostles in a similar fashion represented the authority of Jesus himself And to deny apostolic teaching is to deny the teaching of the Savior. So what these apostles teach is what Christ teaches. For he inspired them by the Holy Spirit. And to be an apostolic church is to be a church that is faithful to the teaching of Scripture. So as we think of that, the second Argument for cessation is is the end of the gift of apostles as I mentioned uh, That apostles are no longer uh, living Uh, Since the apostle John died. There are no longer any Apostles whether somebody wants to claim to be one or not a third argument for cessationism is the found is really the foundational nature of New Testament apostles and prophets this is a little different, and I'd like you to turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter two, verse twenty. Just the first part of that verse, because it says there in Ephesians two twenty, it says, "Having, having been built on the foundation of, of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone." Now say that for this reason, the foundation is finished. It was laid by the apostles and prophets, and it's done. That means their role is done. And this means that the certain gifts that were necessary in the beginning stages of the church, that those gifts were not needed later on. Apostles and prophets were assigned to the very early stages of the start of the church. Approximately, actually, 70 years of church history. And the reason why is that the Holy Spirit chose to use direct revelation to communicate to the body of Christ. But upon the completion of the written word, the New Testament scriptures the written word of God, once that was complete, these gifts were not needed for further special revelation because the canon of Scripture had come together in a close, close written revelation. In fact, the last recorded miracle in Scripture occurred in 58 AD, and when the apostle John finished the book of Revelation, there are no recorded miracles after that. And why is that? Because God's word and revelation were already substantially confirmed and established. So there would be no more need to authenticate the person as being an apostle and receiving revelation from God and there, was, there, there would be no more need for authenticating the message because the message was now inscripturated. It was written down already. And so this was all coming together. So this third argument, the foundational nature of the New Testament apostles and prophets, is because the, they laid the foundation. We don't keep laying the foundation. We build on that foundation. All right? And some of the gifts that were used in the beginning stages of the church are no longer needed because the foundation is laid. It was only used for the foundation of the church. Um, a fourth argument for cessationism is that the nature of miraculous gifts. In other words, miraculous gifts in New Testament times. If we examine them, and I'll spend more time examining uh one of those next week, but today I'm just going to mention them, that, and that's the, the gift of tongues, or various kinds of tongues, manifested by the speaking of a language unknown to the speaker. So what God would give a language to somebody they never studied to be able to speak through them, revelation. So this gift had to be accompanied by the gift of interpretation. In other words, that somebody may have gift of speaking in an, a language they never studied, but they didn't know what they said until the other person had the gift of interpretation. And that gift of interpretation was to interpret what the person said in a language they never studied so the people can get edified by getting a message from God that they understood through human language. See, Christ gave Peter the keys of the kingdom of God, and he used the keys of the kingdom on three occasions. And in all three instances... Tongues was the outward sign of the new work that God was beginning to do. And what were those three instances? It was three times in the book of Acts. And remember, when you're reading Acts, Acts is a historical book. Some of the things that are done in Acts are not normative. They happened in history, but they're often unrepeatable events. All right? The first one would be that the gospel went to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. So the people heard the message. Of course, Pentecostal uh, tongues were given. uh, There was an audible wind. There was visible fire. And the people received a language that they did not understand. Study to give the message to the people, and God was bringing the Jews, of course, including the Jews, in this new thing that he was doing. And what was he doing? He was starting the church. He poured the Spirit out in the church, and now the, the message of the gospel was also going to the nation of Israel. They needed to be saved along with other people. A second passage in Acts chapter 8, now another group was the Samaritans. Now, remember, the Samaritans were uh, a half-breed group because they intermarried with other nations, and therefore they were not considered to be authentic Jews. And so, therefore, the Jews and the Samaritans were always in conflict with one another because of that. But what happened is in Acts chapter 8 is that there was an outward manifestation of the Spirit, and the people spoke in a language that they didn't understand, and the people listening to them understood in their own dialect, in their own language. And so God was what bringing the Samaritans into the kingdom of God. And then Paul, uh, Peter used the keys a third time to include in Acts chapter 10 the bringing in of the Gentiles into the fold, meaning that God was not just dealing with one group of people like the Jews he was dealing with the Samaritans too he was dealing with the Gentiles he was dealing with all the peoples of the earth and that was the new thing that was happening and so all these three events we see that Cornelius the tongues of the spirit came upon them and of course they again heard the message in their own language by people who did not know that language but they understood it and God was doing a miraculous thing. He was bringing people from all tribes and nations to a place where they would hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be saved. And that included the Jews and the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And we're all part of that group. So God was doing something amazing. And that's why we see that these times are accompanied by miraculous things going on. But there a, a note to just consider that there is only... One other occasion uh, in Acts where tongues is mentioned, and that's Acts 19. Uh, that was a special case. But in all of four occasions, the Spirit is mentioned as coming upon them, and nowhere else is it so. And so that how God used this gift of languages to proclaim the message so people could understand it and realize God was doing a new thing and they were including in it. So it was quite miraculous themselves to think, I didn't think I was we, we would be included in God's plan, but they find out they were included in God's plan. And they were now ready to proclaim, the apostles were now ready to proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard it. And they would come and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Also, There are prophecies that were given. And in the prophecies in the New Testament were direct, infallible revelation that was ultimately written down. And then you had healings in the New Testament. And those healings, when you read the Bible, you see that those healings were instantaneous and complete. So just to make a note from our doctrinal statement, it's written there that the speaking in tongues, the interpretation of tongues, the gift of miracles, the gift of healings were given in the beginning days of the church for the purpose of pointing to the judgment of the unbelieving nation of Israel and or the Gentiles being included in the gospel offer and or authenticating the gospel apostles as revealers of divine truth and are no longer in operation today. I'll mention a little bit more about that next week. But if you think about all those things, miraculous gifts today are not the same as in New Testament times. Tongues today are portrayed as a private prayer language not an earthly language. There's no gift of interpretation most of the time. There's no rules for its use. There are no checks and balances. So the end result would be the edification of the people by the proclamation of prophecy where people could understand it. Also tongues were... Well, the word actually the word glossa means human language. Thirty times that word is used in the uh, the Greek Old Testament, and always it meant normal human languages. So we can conclude that tongues were manifest in a foreign language, not, unintelligible gibberish. Acts 2, and verse 6, they heard them speaking in our own language. And there's some particular words there I'm going to bring out next week. But people say, well, what about angel talk? Right here in our passage of Scripture in Corinthians that we read this morning, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have no love, I've become a noisy gong and a clanging symbol. Of course the the point of that passage of scripture is love. No matter what abilities and gifts you have, if you don't have love that accompanied that it doesn't really mean anything. It's just like a, a noisy symbol. Right? But angel talk, some people say, well, it's really the the language of angels. The problem with that is is that this is the only time this phrase is used here. And it's never used again in the word of God. And every time an angel speaks, is mentioned, and speaking to a human being, it's always in normal language. So the angel talk uh, thing that they bring up has no biblical uh, foundation to it. So tongues were always rightly practiced to edify the body to evangelize the lost, but never exercise to satisfy itself or practice as a mark of super-spirituality. So spiritual gifts were, were never intended, all spiritual gifts were never intended to be used for God's benefit. In other words, as Peter tells us, as each has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. A gift has always been given by God to the church to employ in serving each other. That's how we're doing. It's really never for ourselves. We can grow in that gift. We can, uh, we can use our gift properly, but it's not used uh, other than of serving others, of building up the body, of contributing to the body of what God is, uh, how, how God's gifted you so we can all become healthy. And stable the idea of tongues as some ecstatic, static non-human speech is foreign to the Bible also prophecies prophecies today can be fallible they can be fallible revelation that's what they're saying now if that is true then the word prophet means nothing in Scripture in fact, the Bible says if a prophecy is fallible, that would be a false prophet. Jeremiah 14, 14, it says, Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoke to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. And how does God take someone who gives a prophecy that is false? He takes it quite serious. In fact, if you want an example of that, you can take your Bible and turn to Jeremiah chapter 28. And I want you to notice in this passage, Jeremiah 28, verse 9 through 17 we have there the prophet Hananiah. And in this particular passage of Scripture, it says in Jeremiah 28, verse number 9, the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Verse number 10, Jeremiah 28, Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. "...the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and speak to Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations." that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. And I have also given him the beast of the field. Verse 15, Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people to trust a lie. And then verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of this earth. Thus, this year you are going to die, and because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah, the prophet, died in the same year in the seventh month. So, in other words, if a prophet spoke incorrectly, if they were fallible, they were incorrect, they were wrong. They were considered a false prophet, and God took that very seriously. So for someone to say, listen, oh, yeah, there's prophecies being given today, but they're not accurate, they, they can be fallible. That would violate every single definition of a biblical prophet, whether it's a New Testament prophet or an Old Testament prophet. That's, where, where do we get a definition from a New Testament prophet? From the Old Testament. That's how we know, right? Right. And not only that, when people speak today, they speak in a spirit that is different from the spirit of the word of God. The spirit of the word of God is is holy, and therefore the doctrine that is being preached from the word of God leads to a holy life. Also, the spirit of the word is concerned about the word because the spirit of God wrote the word. So the Spirit of God is not going to violate his own word because someone decides that that's not what they think it says. As it says in Peter, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along By the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, what we're getting has to come from the Word of God. The Spirit of the Word is concerned about the Word. And then also, the Spirit of the Word exalts Christ and speaks about Christ. When the Helper was given to the church, Jesus said, Listen, I got to go back to heaven. I'm going to give to the church a Helper. What did he say in John? 16 and John 15, he says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, this is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, it says, He will testify of me. So in other words, that the Spirit of God's job is not to exalt the Spirit. The Spirit of God's job is to exalt Christ, to lift Him up. So men and women and boys and girls can be drawn to Him. And so that is the purpose of why the Spirit of God comes and brings us and illuminates the Word of God so we can have the correct understanding of it and the correct message that comes from it. Because the Spirit of the Word empowers for godly living and service to Jesus Christ. It's all about loving Jesus and serving Him with all our heart mind soul and strength. there has there have always been true and false prophets. There has always been true and false apostles. there have, has always been true and false believers. but, but, but what is amazing uh, to me when you read a passage of scripture like Matthew chapter 7, in verse 22 and 23, a very, very well-known passage, when it says there, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So it seems that those who emphasize a continuation ministry are the ones he's addressing here in this passage of scriptures. So, all these things, healings today are not instantaneous and they are not complete. If you don't have enough faith, you can't be healed. Or if you didn't find the the right faith healer or the right method of how to heal. So, how do you know when it is not God? Well, you have to ask questions. Does it glorify God if a person says they were healed? Is 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 there financial things involved? Is the is the cure complete? Are there any failures? Can even hopeless cases be included? Can the ultimate sickness, death, be cured? And can several limbs be restored? See, when you look at Scripture, those healings in the Word of God have been instantaneous. They have been complete. They don't have to go to rehab after that. It's not a long process of healing. It was done like that because it was given, those gifts were given specifically to lay the foundation of the church, and for us to build upon the church with the gifts that are now left to us to build the church. And then we have the fifth argument of sensationism, cessationism, and that's really the history, the testimony of church history, post-apostolic error. That means all those who were disciples of the apostles afterwards when the apostles were gone, what happened then? Well, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen, Christostom, Augustine, all testify to the cessation of the normal activity of tongues. In fact, Cleon Rogers did a study of this, and he concluded That it is significant that the gift of tongues is nowhere, nowhere alluded to, or hinted to, or even found in any of the writings of the post-apostolic fathers. So that means that something happened to it. Something happened to this gift. This gift is no longer in operation. And then you have the also the sixth argument of sensationism, the testimony of the recent history of tongues. If we go back to the the Montanist, uh, who was at that particular time, uh, that's like four four or five hundred years of church history. Uh, then now. Tongues were being spoken, um, and of course, those the Mount, the Montanists were ended up they ended up being heretics. You have another group of people, priests from France, they also claimed to be speaking in tongues, and they were branded heretics. You have the Jansenists in 1731; uh, they were Roman Catholic reformers. They used to help hold their meetings at night in tombs, and they were said to speak in aesthetic languages. You have the Shakers in 1736 to 1784, who a leading person in that group was named Mother Ann Lee, regarded to be herself to be a female equivalent to Jesus Christ. Of course, they were marked to be heretics. You have the Irvingites in 1830. And, of course, they already were marked as heretics because their revelations contradicted scriptures. And so even in this modern era, uh, you have uh, Charles F. Parham in uh, 1873 said that uh, he also was speaking in tongues. The Bethel Healing Home in 1898, Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas, that the Bible evidence of the baptism of of the Spirit is speaking in tongues was colluded there. Agnes Osmond, January 1, 1901, the first to speak in tongues in modern times as a result of seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have the Houston Bible School, and you all have in 1966 the Azusa Street Mission at 312 Azusa Street, where that place where Pentecostalism began to grow rapidly. Services were led by, at that time by both male and female preachers, and the Spirit of God was seen as falling upon people. That the charismatic movement began in an Episcopal, Episcopalian church in Van Nuys, California in 1960. And and it spread to all mainline denominations, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists. And of course, it's, it's become very prominent today that most people are believing that tongues Uh, is still in operation, that uh, men still have the gift of healing and uh, casting out demons. And it's not even very much even questioned today that those things maybe not not be true. Uh. And so the seventh argument for cessationism would be the sufficiency of Scripture. God has given us a complete revelation, and that complete revelation is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 and 17, a very well-known passage of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. For what reason? So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, See, so that the Word of God is sufficient to do everything God needs to do during this time of human history before he comes back. Also, experience is not self-validating. Rather, the absolute Word of God serves to authoritatively distinguish between what is true and what is false, what is God's way and what is every other way. So all experience must submit itself to Scripture's test of authenticity. And then under that, teaching does not include receiving special revelation from God, but to the ability to grasp the revelation that has already been given. So that's what we are to do. We are to preach, we are to teach because we have the full word of God. Permanently we have the Old and New Testament and we are to communicate them effectively to the listeners. Instruction was always on the minds of the apostles and they considered an intellectual grasp of truth of the faith uh, the body of faith given to the church, a vital prerequisite for uh, to acceptable Christian living and service. That's why Paul would say in, in his message to young Timothy, and for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And then we even see uh, in 2 Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So here in Scripture, we find that it is sufficient for all life and godliness, right? It tells us that in the word of God. We don't need anything else. The Spirit of God is using the Word of God to make us what we ought to be. An eighth argument for sensationism could be this, the rules followed in the New Testament to regulate revelatory gifts. If these rules were followed today, every charismatic meeting would really need to be closed down. A New New Testament church ministry is for the purpose of edifying, for teaching, For explaining. If someone did speak in tongues in the New Testament, the most by three tongue speakers, they were to speak one at a time. There always must have been an interpreter, and there must not be any women speakers. As long as tongues were valid, they were not to be forbidden. In 1 Corinthians 12:31 and 13:39 it teaches that tongues were not to be a gift to be sought after. They were to seek love and the better gifts and prophecy, understanding. So these rules had to be followed. If they weren't followed then they weren't according to what the Bible teaches. A ninth argument for cessationism would be the veric- that the verification sign gifts diminished as the apostles' ministry wound down. In other words, creation of uh, the cessation of gifts in the New Testament was like a battery wearing down. Why is there a decline in healing in the development of, of the New Testament? The Gospels record 41 healings. The Book of Acts record 18 healings. The Epistles record zero healings. And, of course, James tells the church to call for the elders. And that's still in operation today. Paul, after 1 Corinthians, he wrote 1 Corinthians. Remember, he wrote also 12 other... uh, epistles and in none of those other 12 he mentions tongues Peter never mentions tongues James never mentions it John never mentions it Jude never mentions it So in other words tongues was appeared briefly in the early days of the church and then stopped So why do the New Testament epistles record the illnesses of God's workers? It's because these sign gifts began to diminish. They began to pass off the scene. A couple of passages of scriptures to turn to. You have uh, Acts chapter 19. Well we find here in Second Corinthians twelve, while well, you just turn there, in verse seven through nine, Paul was ill. In Timothy first Timothy chapter five, verse twenty-three, Timothy was ill. And in Second Timothy four twenty, Trophimus was ill. And at the beginning of Paul's ministry, miraculous gifts were verifying the apostles the apostleship, and then notice in Acts 19, verse 11 and 12, it says, God was performing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from the body of the sick and the the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But when they ran their course, Paul leaves Trophimus ill at the end of his ministry. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 20, it says, Erastus remains at Corinth, and Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. You would have to ask the question, why did Paul, who had these miraculous abilities and gifts, in the beginning of his ministry, leave him sick at Miletus? Why did he just heal him? It seems like Paul healed people all the time. Even Philippians chapter 2, verse 26 through 30, Epaphroditus a a was also ill, and it's recorded there because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, and indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me. So it says in that scripture, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me, why didn't Paul just heal him? You have to ask that question, right? So it seems like these foundational gifts that were given to the apostles were by the end of their ministries or it was already dying out. So that's why we would I would consider myself a cessationist, not a continuationist. And one last thing, uh, at least this morning, is the tenth argument for cessationism is the unique role of miracles in the end times. You know, the fourth time, at least the fourth major time, Historically, miraculous gifts are mentioned in Scripture will not be for the edification, but for the ultimate deception of the church. It will be be for a time in which Satan will mimic Christ and deceive the whole world that he is the Messiah. Matthew 24 verse 24 It says for false christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead if possible the elect and then second Thessalonians chapter 9 chapter 2 verse 9 through 11 That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deceptions of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. For this very reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. And then in Revelation chapter 13, verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. A mock resurrection that people believe that he is the Messiah. And then Revelation 16, 14. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to kings of the whole earth and uh, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God Almighty. And then Revelation 19, 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So there is going to be a unique role of miracles in the end times. Maybe that started already. in which Satan is setting the world up to believe he is the Christ. He will be the man of peace that makes peace without war. He will be an intellectual genius. He will be a political genius. He will be a man who is well-liked and makes peace between Israel and the rest of the nations. If he can do that, that is what the world is looking for. It would be no big stretch for him to take control, right? even right now in the world, the way it is, right? Because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for leadership, and he's going to be a leader. So saying all those things this morning, those are just some. I'm sure there could be more arguments for cessationism, the unique role of miracles, the end of the gift of apostleship, the foundational nature of the New Testament apostles and prophets, the nature of miraculous gifts, the testimony of church history, the testimony of recent history, the sufficiency of scripture. The rules followed in the New Testament to regulate revelatory gifts, and the verification signs diminished as the apostles' ministries wound down. And then the unique role of miracles in the end times. Those are, are some of the arguments that we could all use to say, "This is why I'm a cessationist." And I believe that as we, if you dig into them more, you'll find that there's more there than I even mentioned this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning that in your word, Lord, we find that there are things that have been substantiated, that have been recorded, that have been inscripturated for us to know that what we believe can be argued. What we believe we can stand on. And Lord, no matter which way, The wind of doctrine blows. We can always come back to Scripture and we can study it through to find out if we are believing the spirit of truth. Lord, always make us discerning believers that we would always stand on the word of God. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, you would make us people that can communicate it to others, that we would not be deceived so easily. And though, Lord, no matter how dark and twisted the world becomes, and even uh, so-called Christian ministries become more adamant towards things like this, then I pray, Lord, that we would be able to know where we stand on it as we look into the Word of God to find out what your word says and what has actually happened historically. So, Lord, thank you uh, that you allow us to know these things and to be able to investigate them. I just pray, Lord, in all that we do, we would always want to do it, Lord, with the proper attitude of love and that we would always want to have unity within the body. And Lord, as you have gifted each one of us, I pray, Lord, our gifts would always be to serve the church body, that Christ also may be uplifted and edified, and the gospel may be preached, and the light and the salt that Christians bear may continue to go on no matter how long you tarry. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.